Welcome to the latest episode of our myth-busting uh, session. Uh, this is in the second season of the Accidental Marketer podcast. I'm Mary Abazia, and as always, I'm joined with my colleagues, Tom Spitali and Hi, Sean Mary. Wellham. Hey, Mary. Hey, Tom. Hey. So, um, so the myth that we're going to bust today is the idea that companies, especially those that um, are famous, they've been very successful in the past, they, um, they have highly intelligent people, um, and the thought is, is that they continuously seek out and embrace industry and technology changes, and they actually have a cadence for, for using that to improve their business. Okay, is that clear? So yeah. the thing that makes us question this, because it seems like you know any of these great companies, we look at, we go, oh, you know, they're really smart. They've got smart people. They've got a great culture, and look at all the cool stuff they're doing. But then all of a sudden, these famous great companies, we start reading about how they're taking corrective action to survive, you know, or there's some major hiccups. So, Sean, what's the deal? What's really happening here? You know, I think there's the, the one way I look at it, first of all, is that, that success is relative, not absolute. So you can be making widgets and you can make more and better widgets every year and have more efficiencies. So you're always improving. But that take, doesn't take into account what competitors are doing and how the technology landscape changes. So if you're only looking internally and you're looking at your own performance, you can say, we're doing better and better. And yet the market around you is moving. So sometimes if you're too inwardly focused, you, you, you forget that competition is a relative concept, not an absolute one. And I think the other thing that plays is if you're very successful, and I happen to think the more successful you are, the harder it is to recognize that the ground is shifting underneath you because if you've got a successful formula that's that's been proven over many years you're tempted to stick with it you know you don't want to kill the goose that laid the golden egg take kodak as a as a classic example of a business that that really couldn't see past the fact that film was better than digital and people would want the tangibility of a photograph and maybe didn't move quick enough in terms of how things were shifting. So I think it's a combination of a little bit of introspection and, um, and, and maybe, maybe arrogance is too strong a word, but a sort of self-belief that, that is not justified. And so wow. I see. Um, Tom, what do you think? Yeah, I think a human nature is maybe a better word. A human nature has been shown, I guess, in many, many psychological studies to be resistant to change. And I think that once you get into an organization that is successful and, and, and all the external metrics, as Sean said, tell you that you're being successful, um, you know, it's really hard to make the kinds of radical changes that need to be made in the age that we're in now. Let's face it, um, maybe 20, 30 years ago, when there were significant barriers to entry, the, you know, the slowness to change, maybe that was a good thing in these big companies. You, you, you didn't jump on every new fad that turned out to be just that a fad instead of a trend. And you, know, you, 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 you stayed the course, but What's happening in, in the last couple of decades um, with technological change is that the barriers to entry, the cost of, of new competitors getting into your business has come down, have come down remarkably. And so you, you've got competition coming from all angles. And um, 
the, the competition is really technologically based, new ways of doing things that are great for customers. And, and we see it all the time with companies that we're working with. They're just really hesitant, maybe in a state of denial about how fast change is coming and how significant these new competitors are and how much their competitors like these new, or sorry, not the competitors, the customers like these new value propositions. And they pull the trigger way too late. Mary, you see the same thing? All the time, all the time. I really like your point about the barriers to entry. Um, and that's some of the external. To add to that, I think one of the biggest things that I'm seeing internally, and I only have to imagine that you know, the boneyard of the blockbusters and radio shacks and all of those had the same phenomena is that internally we are structured around P&Ls. So the people that are making those decisions are responsible for a product line for, you know, kind of protecting that turf, if you will, and, and managing the money. But what happens in that type of a financial structure is, is that there's no room to cut across, as Sean said, and really look at those customers and what the customer needs are and the changes. It doesn't fit the financial equation of how each silo is making money. It takes a real discipline for a company to be able to shift that and look at their P&L differently to actually embrace those changes and, and encourage it. Otherwise, you just pretty much like you eat your young is, is probably the best way to say that is, is a new product or a new service comes along and you're like, oh, doesn't fit, you know, what we need to do, or it's not as profitable as some of our other stuff. So we have to kill it. <laughs> and it's really sad. I mean, you could see how new cool stuff doesn't enter. Um, Sean, what do, what have you seen around innovation and, and, and some of that internal conflict too? You know, one of the things before I get to that, I just want to I want to retract my arrogance comment because I was thinking listening to Tom and I was thinking, yeah, you know what? It, it's such an obvious human trait not to change a winning position. But the opposite is also true. If you're a challenger brand or a new entry into a business or you're maybe third or fourth in market share, you've got no incentive to stick with what you've always done because you're going to get what you always get. And there's much more of a drive towards innovation with people that are challenging. Whereas the people sat on top of the hill, it's natural that you, you've, you've got a more defensive mindset and the challengers have the more offensive mindset. So it is actually really common sense why, why market leaders get overtaken by events, because it just doesn't make any sense to continually tear down their own walls, you know, to destroy their own business. It's, it's part of that thing. You know, yeah, I, I, I always Sean, look Sean, I, you know, yeah. because you said destroy your business, I, it, it reminds, you know, the but the really great business leaders, you and I both worked at GE under, uh, in the Jack Welsh era, era. we're dating ourselves a little bit, but <laughs> John, you'll remember that Jack Welsh actually had a strategic exercise that he insisted that all of his businesses undertake. And this was in the 90s when technological change was just really starting to accelerate in the business world. And he actually called the exercise destroyyourbusiness.com. And the idea, and Sean and I both went through it, was that you should figure out how a web-based competitor might, you know, with, with good funding, might attack your business and, and, and win in your marketplace by serving customers better with a new value proposition unencumbered by, you know, the foundations and the things that are in place for the incumbents. And yeah. it was yeah. great. Well, 
Well, what was cool about that is you knew the vulnerabilities. You knew where you were weak. You know, you you had the inside knowledge. It's like uh, I had a friend who was a, a police officer who who made the point to me that if you want to know the weakest part of your house, ask yourself the question. If you arrived home and had lost your keys, how would you break in? Because you know the easiest way to break into your own house. And it's a similar sort of concept. It's like you've, you've actually got a great benefit in terms of the knowledge you have of your own business and your own markets, and you're in a good position. And I think it comes from that idea of paranoia. There was that um, book that you you certainly referred me to, Tom. It was um, Andy Grove, I think, the Intel guy. Mm-hmm. He had a book called Only the Paranoid Survive or something like that. And and their whole approach, Intel's approach, they were very successful when they were making the, the memory chips. And, and, and that was a business that kept scaling up. You know, you had a 64-bit chip, which was their entry point. And then it, it quadrupled to a 256-bit chip that all the competitors were making. And they, they took the view that this incremental gain, you know, going to the next step, which would, would have been the 512-bit chip, would just make them the same as everyone else. And they sort of doubled down and, and came up with the 1,024-bit the chip. They leapfrogged the competition because they were taking a view that they had to had to move ahead. And that business was very successful. They've probably missed out on the mobile revolution, but now they're repositioning again towards um, AI, driverless cars, big data. That they're, they're, they're always scanning the horizon and developing products rather than sitting back on their laurels. But the key thing that drives that, as the original founder said in his book, is paranoia. You know, you can't rest on your laurels. You have to be a little bit worried about who's coming to get you. You know, I, um, I'm going to weigh in on this one since Intel was my first job <laughs> and say that, that that culture, you're absolutely right, Sean. And ironically, we were always working on looking at not just a chip, but we were looking at the application all the way down to where we went to Japan and did a mock setup of a family using interactive TV. And that was back in the early, what, 90s? So, you know, it's amazing that they were trying to simulate those things all the way down and continuing to build it back into their chips. So that's probably a good example of a company that um, is kind of broken our myth in a lot of ways that they are going to, they're pushing themselves, their culture, and hopefully they'll continue, is to embrace that. Um, I'm curious about the millennials. Um, Do either of you have a comment on how, as the millennials are making a lot of these decisions now, how that may even change this this uh, dynamic even more? Tom, you breathe in first. So. <laughs> I've got a millennial kicking around somewhere. I should ask him. We should get him on the yeah. podcast, actually. We can get it from the horse's mouth. Yeah, me too. I, I Well, I think what's interesting, when we're inside these incumbent big, big companies, um, and they talk so much about, how a lot of erroneously i think by the way i should mention about how customers really uh don't trust new solutions you know and that what customers these days really want is the safety of a brand that they know and love now that sounds really ridiculous to those outside of these businesses but inside these businesses, these arguments carry a lot of weight. It makes these people feel better, I think, a lot of times about their slowness to change. And the reason that impacts the millennials is that the, the millennials just don't really seem to care. In fact, they often mistrust uh, established brands and are often looking for new emerging brands that maybe better reflect 
the way they view themselves as anti-establishment, et cetera. And, and this is not just true in business to, the cons business to consumer worlds. In the business to business world, Google says that over 50% of B2B buyers are millennials now. So they're making decisions for consumer and business products, and it's exactly the opposite uh, to, to the, the mindset a lot of these incumbents have about what people really yeah. want. I mean, I don't know if this is true or not. The sense I have is that they've grown up in a in a in a world of rapid change you know of, of of things getting faster and smaller and and different whether it's a when their kids playing on a on a game console that continually improves or whether it's the the way they consume media you know the netflix the spotify's all the way you know, we used to go to record stores and, and spend an afternoon flicking through record racks i mean that whole concept is just alien but it seemed to be around for a long time if you look at the pop music that started in the in the 60s well, I was going to record shops in the 80s. So for 20 years, people bought their music by going into record shops. And then we've gone from um, from records to CDs, from CDs to digital and the whole iTunes thing, from then iTunes all the way to like Spotify, the way you consume and, and sort of rent your music rather than own it, and similar for any other medium. So I think because they've seen such rapid change, they, they really don't expect anything to last they 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 expect the next big thing, and that mindset, I think, is different from the, uh, you know, the, the the generation X or or Y or whichever whichever ones it is. You know, old, old fellas like us, Tom. Well, I was gonna say certainly different from the baby boomers. Yeah. Yeah, without yeah. a doubt, without a doubt, and and we're seeing less of them, and 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 more of the of the Gen X, and 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 of course now, as you said, Tom, that millennial cohort is 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 getting into positions of authority so maybe this is one of those that those myths that will fix itself just by the rotation of new thinking you know maybe it's 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 a a, a symptom of what's gone before that's interesting that's a good way of looking at it too is um kind of the tide of change going back to um my point about the p l's and and really metrics um, you know, we've recently been with some clients and one of our uh, favorite change managers, Jenny Ertle, was really encouraging this group, this customer and, and our group to think about two really important things, the metrics that are around it. And as you said, as the decision makers change and the types of audiences, how do those metrics change? And then what is the role that those executives have to play in that type of environment to be able to make sure to to bust this myth if you will tom what are your thoughts on that one well i think in b2b the uh the biggest change that customers seem to be demanding is that companies that have a lot of different offers you know in a, in a well-rounded value proposition need to coordinate their offer across these uh, these um, product lines. Yeah, product lines, yep. And um, and and coordinate in such a way that it, you know the, the 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 salespeople for that company aren't passing each other in the parking lot. You yeah. know. And, and and so I think the metrics and incentives as you mentioned earlier, Mary, don't facilitate that kind of cooperation. So two things need to happen. One is that the the executives really need to um, 
coordinate experiments that make that happen and say, we're going to pull, you know, some customers offline. We're going to coordinate our efforts across profit lines. And, um, you know, we're going to see what happens to see if this really delights customers, which it often does. And then, you know, we're going to figure out how to expand that across the organization. And of course, the expansion of that across the organization is often got to change the way that people are uh, compensated. Um, you know, they, they, they often don't get compensated for cooperating with their brethren and maybe even, you know, taking a lower profitability for a combined offer for the good of the customer. So these kinds of things have to change. Yeah, that's good. Sean, any closing thoughts on this myth? Yeah, well, just building on what what you and Tom were saying about the metrics and the and the incentive structures. You know, it, it, remember it always starts at the top. You know, Tom, you mentioned the destroyyourownbusiness.com. That was a Jack Welch initiative, so therefore, it got everybody's attention. And if you have a boss that's by nature conservative or by nature risk adverse or is looking at the operational stats internally rather than scanning the horizon of how the customer's world is changing that permeates down so i guess you could say that about anything but to me it's so critical that if you don't have someone at the 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 in the wheelhouse who has that mindset then everything all, all bets are off you know you need to have that and then the incentive structure so I, so i think it's it's um it's not just down to the individuals. It, it's, it's, it really has to start at the top. It has to be a sort of corporate value as opposed to, a, um, to an operational metric. Mm, that's good. That's good. Well, um, we're at our time now. So I just, um, you know, we always want to hear your feedback, especially if you're a millennial. We, um, we would love to, to hear how you're thinking about this myth or any of our myths um, and you can give us any of your feedback, of course, at theaccidentalmarketer.com. Um, and if you want to, uh, to go and listen to our other podcasts, uh, it's on iTunes. And you're always welcome to rate us. Uh, always looking forward to your feedback. Um, thank you very much. And we look forward to joining us on future episodes.